Please take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 4 this morning as we continue our series in Daniel. We're saying that the theme of Daniel is God's sovereign rule over all of human history and over all the nations of the earth. Daniel heard this, or Nebuchadnezzar heard this theme when he had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that he wasn't the king over all the earth. God was. He had to learn it the hard way. The angel told him this in the dream. Daniel told it to him in the interpretation. And then God told him when he was crawling around like an ox. He had to learn the hard way. One of the other themes of these first few chapters of the book of Daniel is that God is able. And this is the last verse of chapter 4, the last statement where he says that God is able to abase those who walk in pride. God is able to abase those who walk in pride. And we see that in each chapter. In chapter 1, God showed he was able to do what? To deliver those four men, Daniel and his three friends, from the defiling meat of Herod. God is able to deliver us from defiling ourselves with the things of this world. And then we see in chapter 2, God was able. <laughs> it's still kind of in the way here. i got to keep moving this thing. God is able to deliver us. And God is able to deliver Daniel and, again, his three friends and all the other wise men of Babylon from death if they could not both tell and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They're all going to die. But God gave the dream to Daniel. God is able to deliver from death. And then in chapter 3, of course, the three young men were faced with the fiery furnace, and they didn't deny the Lord. God was able to deliver them from denying the Lord and deliver them through even the fire so that not a hair of their head was singed. God is able. God is able to deliver. He can deliver us. Amen? And he's delivering us today. And in chapter 4, we see God delivers Nebuchadnezzar from his wicked pride. God delivered him and raised him up. And that's what we will see today in our message, which I've entitled, You're No Match for the Unstoppable King. And in this incredible story, we see how Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. The world is at his fingertips. He's a protector and a provider for the whole world. But God brings this man to his knees, to where he's chewing grass like a beast. And it was then that Nebuchadnezzar looked up. God is able to bring the proud low to get him to look up and recognize God as the one, the only, the true, the living, the most high God, the king of kings. That's what this story is about. And if Nebuchadnezzar was no match, neither am I. <laughs> if Nebuchadnezzar was no match to stand against God, neither is neither are you, neither is the mayor, neither is the governor, neither is our president, neither is any man, neither is any woman, no matter how much wealth or power they may have. Let's please read verse 37 as we begin our message and then bow in a word of prayer. And there's a phrase in this verse that you would think would appear elsewhere in the Bible, but you, you do a search. But I did a search just for the English phrase, King of Heaven, 
Wouldn't you think that appears in other places of the Bible? This is the only place where that phrase appears. And it's said by the king of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar. What an incredible admission. Let's read this verse together. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And let's pray. Father, now take this time to help us to be still and know that you are God. You are the unstoppable God. You are going to work with unstoppable love, power, mercy to bring us to ourselves that we might worship you in our lives even as you brought Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, what an incredible thing that we would see Nebuchadnezzar. I believe we'll see him in heaven, that you truly saved him. And we thank you for your amazing grace to save such a one as him. But all of us are sinners, and you do the work still today. So do your work of grace and salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. So this young man became a millionaire at the age of 18 years old. I don't know if you could recognize him in this picture, but I know pretty much all of us have heard of him. Howard Hughes became a world-famous millionaire through his buying of the TWA Airlines and making it the number two airline in the world, or in the United States of his day. You know what the number one airline was? Pan Am. And do you know where TWA and Pan Am are today? Bankrupt. Don't even exist. It shows you that high and mighty business and corporations, God can bring them down, right? But he was a film director, producer, one of the wealthiest people of his day. He acquired control of TWA Airlines, made it, like I said, one of the most famous and well-known airlines in the world, and he also took control of a film studio called RKO Film Studio, and he made the biggest movie hits of his day. Basically, Howard Hughes became the Harvey Weinstein of his day. His life descended into gross immoralities and all sorts of very abusive, wicked behaviors. This then led to other complications emotionally and mentally in him. He became very compulsive in all different kinds of weird ways. And then the last number of years of his life, this most recognizable, one of the most recognizable people in the world who had been out in the public became a recluse. And everybody wondered even at times whether he was dead. They did not know. He was so reclusive, suffering from mental illness, and he had all kinds of weird behaviors. I didn't see the movie, but I, I know they made a movie about it. I don't know. I guess Leonardo DiCaprio, he's kind of weird himself. He's a good guy to uh, to play, play that part. But God brought him low. The richest man in the world, the Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates of his day, God brought him low. And from what we know, though, he did not repent. He died in his solitude in his reclusiveness, and maybe he was saved, we just don't know. 
But it reminds me of what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. How Nebuchadnezzar was living high. He was the big man. He was the king of the hill. Look what he says in chapter 4 of verse 30 of Daniel. As his kingdom reaches its peak, with great pomp and pride, he boasts and says, Is not this great Babylon, Daniel chapter 4 verse 30, that I have built for the house of my kingdom? By the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty. So he says, look what I did. Look at this city that I've done. And he says, look who I am. Look what I have been able to accomplish. I, Nebuchadnezzar. And then look why I did it. He did it for himself. He says, for the honor of my majesty. So filled with pride. And as Nebuchadnezzar looked over the city, he felt very secure because he had a state-of-the-art, double-wall system of protection that was unlike any wall in the world at his time. There was an inner wall and an outer wall. The inner wall, they say, archaeologists say, was 21 feet thick, and it was reinforced with defense towers every 60 feet. There was a tower where people would be watching out for any kind of enemy or attack. The outer wall was 11 feet thick, and it also had watchtowers. And the, the wall went all around, extending in a diameter around Babylon. He felt so secure. Unstoppable. Last week, I gave you a little timeline. And with the help of Eunice, I revised it a little bit. So if there's any wrong gates in here, it's Eunice's fault, not mine, because not just and notice at the top, I also said a possible timeline of Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign. Now, some of these dates we're, we're certain of. For example, we know his reign begins in 605. And we know that Daniel chapter 1 and 2 is right at the beginning of his reign. We know that the siege of Jerusalem was in 597. That's when Ezekiel was taken into captivity. And we know the destruction of Jerusalem was about 10, 11 years after that in 586 B.C. That's one of the most well-known dates in Old Testament history, the destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, 586 B.C. Then the fiery furnace, there's no date with that. We don't know what was the date of these three young men going into the fiery furnace, but most say that it was somewhere in the middle of his reign. So Daniel 1 and 2 is at the beginning. Daniel 3 is in the middle and Daniel 4 is at the end. But wait, let's look at these other dates. After the fiery furnace, he sieged Tyre. Remember why we, he said he wanted Tyre last week? What was in Tyre that was, not tires, what was in Tyre that was very uh, much desirable to Nebuchadnezzar? Remember the, the cedar trees that were growing there for his building projects and so forth. He sieged Tyre for 14 or 15 years. And what came of that is his army was not well paid for that period of time. But he goes back to Jerusalem, probably, and I believe that's when he had his warning dream. Now, this is what this is a guesstimation in 571. And the reason I'm saying this is most say that this dream did happen toward the end of his life. So we need, as I said, at least nine years to put this somewhere in his life because he has the dream. And then there's a 12 month gap. And then the dream takes place and he's insane for seven years. So 12 months, seven years. 
There's about eight years there. So there, and then there has to be time on the other end of the eight years because his kingdom, he, his kingdom is restored to him. You see, so it actually fits in if this dream was at the end of his life that he gets the warning dream right after his siege of Tyre, where in chapter 4, verse 4, it says he was flourishing. So he felt good about things. Then he got the dream. And then he hears about the possibility of war with Egypt and paying off his army. And we looked at those verses last week. So he got the warning dream, 571, went to war against Egypt right after that. And then came back from his war with Egypt, feeling more powerful and secure than ever. And he says, look at Babylon that I have built. So that's how we could fit this dream into his life. And for seven years, he descends into insanity. The unstoppable king in verse 31, he loses two things almost immediately. What does he lose? He loses his kingdom, and then he loses his mind. Verse 31, thy kingdom is departed from thee. And he loses his mind, crawling around, eating grass as an ox. His hair growing like the eagle's feathers, and his nails of his hands and feet growing like the claws of a bird. And that would have taken a number of years for that to happen. That's why... We say it was a seven year, the seven times was seven year period. But let me just say that this descent into insanity had nothing to do with chemical imbalance. It had everything to do with sin. And I'm not saying that everyone who is having these kinds of psychological disturbances, it's directly sin. But I do believe that sin and Satan are much at play in people's psychological abnormalities and imbalances that are displayed even by Nebuchadnezzar. Imagine if Nebuchadnezzar went to a, a psychoanalyst today. They would diagnose him something and they would say, here's the medicine you need to get better. But Nebuchadnezzar's problem was not a chemical problem. It wasn't a chemical imbalance that was his problem. Therefore, it's not a chemical that's going to fix his problem. It was a sin that was his problem. And medicine wasn't the solution to his problem. He needed to repent. I find it incredible that he was cured without going to a psychoanalyst and without getting any kind of medicine Prescribed to him. How was he cured? Number one, by looking up to God. So we see Nebuchadnezzar, full of pride, the unstoppable king. He has to realize that he's no match for God. And so he has to do these three things. The first is he has to look up to God for restoration. So look what it says in verse 34, and I'm going to give you three words. The first word is, look up. <laughs> look up to God. Verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. And as soon as he did that, what happened? 
Verse 34, my understanding returned unto me. That was his solution. Maybe you're having depression today. Maybe you're thinking even about going to a psychoanalyst. But perhaps you need to look up to God. Perhaps there's sin in your life that you need to repent from and turn from and start stop looking at yourself. Stop looking down at everything and everybody as if there's no hope. Nebuchadnezzar had no hope. He was a beast in the field. You know, I don't know where he was for that seven years. Some say he's actually maybe in one of his gardens that they kind of like, his administration just kept him in one of his beautiful gardens to kind of like just hope he comes out of this, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But we don't know exactly where he was. But it has been said that those who are proud look down at things and people around them as if they're better than them. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. He was always looking down. So what did God do to him? He made him look down like a beast, you know, looking down at the grass. And when people are always looking down on others in pride, they can't see God who's above them. So God brought Nebuchadnezzar down to where he couldn't look down anymore. He had to finally look up, look up. And he saw the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Now notice this where he says, in verse 34, my understanding returned unto me. And the very same expression is, as well is used in verse 36. My reason returned unto me. So my understanding returned unto me, verse 34. Repeated in verse 36, my reason returned unto me. And also my kingdom was restored. So what was lost was restored. But it wasn't through self-reformation here. This is not reformation going on of just self-improvement. This is repentance going on. Sin brings us down. And the solution isn't just reforming yourself. The solution is repenting from sin and believing on our Lord Jesus Christ and receiving a righteous stand in his sight. He looks up to God. And who does he see in verse 34? I blessed the Most High. This is the one true God. This is the same expression used of God himself to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34, if you look there, that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. So it is the true God who spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream through the angel, through Daniel, in the interpretation, and God himself, when he was crawling around like a beast, Nebuchadnezzar looks up to the true God, the Most High, in repentance. And repentance leads to restoration. Amen? Deliverance. So when he looked up, verse 34 says, he recognized two things about God. Number one, Verse 34, he lives forever. He says, I bless the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever and ever. Now, I'm going to take a risk here today in church, and we're going to talk about God. <laughs> we're not going to talk about you so much today. We're going to talk about God and his glory. 
And it's incredible to me that Nebuchadnezzar has such a deep theological understanding of God, even though he has been a pagan throughout his life. Everything Nebuchadnezzar says here is accurate theologically, and it's deep theological about the Lord. And it's amazing that when a person does become saved, they, they kind of intuitively know certain things, but I believe he learned them as well from Daniel and the three young men. But he recognized when he says, I bless the Most High, I praise and honored Him that liveth forever and ever. Those words, bless and praise, are the very same words that Daniel used when God gave him the dream back in chapter 2. When Daniel blessed and praised God. In other words, these are the words of a true believer. These are the words of a young man who even grew up in the faith of God throughout his life. Now Nebuchadnezzar is blessing and praising the same God Daniel did. And he says, God lives forever. God is the only one who does. Amen? God is the only one who is eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient. That means that God always has been. God always will be. He needs nothing to be. He is God. And he's not waiting to become. He is. He was. He will be. And that means as well, by implication, that he doesn't change. I am the Lord. I change not. He's immutable. That means he doesn't change. And Nebuchadnezzar realizes that God is the unchanging, eternal, self-existent, self-sustaining being. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought of it, he's like, I don't need God. I can, I got what I need to sustain myself. But he realized he needed God. God brought him down to a beast. These words where it says, I honored him that liveth forever reminds me and can remind all of us of the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, where John brings us to the very throne room of God, where the four beasts are worshiping, crying, holy, 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 and the 24 elders fall down and cast their crowns before the Lord, before the, in that throne room chapter of Revelation chapter 4. And here are the verses. And it's the word of God says, And when those beasts gave glory and honor, and notice the words, glory and honor, similar words to Nebuchadnezzar, and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. Similar words to Nebuchadnezzar, he liveth forever. So Nebuchadnezzar had the sense to worship the God who lives forever, just like those who actually see him do. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him again that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Do you know God has made us to take pleasure in him? Nebuchadnezzar had not done that in his life until this moment. When he looked up and he worships God who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar is enjoying God. God made us to take pleasure in him. 
And as we worship him and take pleasure in him, he will take pleasure or is pleased with us. And that's real success. Again, that verse says that thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. We were created. Why were we created? To bring pleasure to God. How can we bring pleasure to God? To take pleasure in God. I believe there's a correlation there. Nebuchadnezzar is taking pleasure in God, and I believe is pleasing God as he praises him. We're a bag of needs. We can't walk out the door without needing all kinds of things. We need sleep, food, air. (laughs) Try living five minutes without air. Clothing. What does God need? God is self-sufficient. He's the only being who of himself needs nothing. He's not waiting to be something. He's not. He is. He is right now all he ever will be. He was all he ever is right now and will be. He exists eternally, unchangeably, and is completely self-existent. And that's what Jesus Christ was saying of himself when he said, before Abraham was, I am. That's an amazing thing for a man to say, I am this God. And he is. He lives forever, but then Nebuchadnezzar goes on and says, you reign forever. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the world, but he, he, you know what his sickness led him to believe? Brevity. He saw the brevity of his life. He saw the brevity of his kingdom. God, you reign forever. I'm not going to reign forever. God, you reign forever. Verse 34b, he says, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. That's a great, you know, when you look at ancient kings, like Roman, even in the kingdom of Rome, and even in the kingdoms in this day and age, how did the kings often perceive themselves? How did the pharaohs perceive themselves? They perceived themselves as deities. Nebuchadnezzar probably was brought into that that deception. But now he realizes that his kingdom isn't forever, but that God's is. And this is the very similar expression used in Daniel chapter 7. If you turn up a few chapters, can you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, please. And these verses are quoted by Jesus when he's being tried before the high priests. And he quoted this verse to say he is the Son of God. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. That's the Son coming to the Father. And they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him, that is to Jesus Christ, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. And here's the language so similar to Nebuchadnezzar's. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar praised God for. Whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. Daniel 4.34. Daniel 7. 
14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. He reigns forever. Aren't you glad we serve a king? He will reign forever. And we will reign with him. We learned that last week, didn't we, brother, in the memory verse? This reminds us. And Nebuchadnezzar's praise here, actually, and I'm, we're going to look at a few verses here. We already looked at John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, and now here we see the psalmist in Psalm 29, verse 10. It says, The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. Nebuchadnezzar sounds like the sweet psalmist of Israel. He sounds like he's been around the throne of God. Psalm 145, 13 says, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Your kingdom is an everlasting dominion from generation to generation. I'm telling you, he sounds like the psalmist. It's amazing. Man, it seems like events are just flying all around us. It seems things happen so randomly. Storms and tempests, earthquakes and fires. And sometimes we wonder who's in control in the midst of the storm when everything's blowing around. You know who's in control of every piece of dust and every particle that's blowing? God is in control. He's in control of every grain of dust providentially and omnipotently ordering all events. He's over all things at all times. He never abdicates his reign. He's king forever. We have to believe that. He sitteth upon the flood. He sitteth upon the flood. That means when it's flooding, he's like, whoa, I'm losing it all. All my memories flooded away. He sits upon the flood. He's ordering the events. He's going to bring you through. Worship him. Look up to God. The second thing we want to see from Nebuchadnezzar's praise and his repentance to restoration is he looked up to God, but he learns from God. He learns two things. He learns, first of all, man's finite puniness. I think that's the first time I ever used that word in a sermon. Puny. We used to call these, you're puny, you know, you're little. We're little, small, insignificant. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as. Verse 35, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth, that includes himself, are reputed as nothing. Nothing. We're puny. This so reminds me of Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 15 through 7 and 17. Can we read those verses together? Let's all read them. They're up on the screen there. Isaiah said, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a little thing. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. Wow, Nebuchadnezzar hit it right on the head, didn't he? He says, we're counted as nothing. That's what, that's what Isaiah had said of old. How nothing is nothing? Well, he says, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. Now, 
I'm going to feed my plant here today. My plant is over there. For those on Zoom, you're not going to see me feed the plant. But we've had this plant. I love my plant. I feel like I'm Jonah, you know, with his gourd. If my plant dies, I'm going to cry. But we've had this plant since uh, we moved into 519 8th Avenue in 2001, almost 20 years. Plant's looking pretty good. Oh, he likes the sun over here. And uh, so I, I feed the plant. I mean, if you want to take control of feeding the plant, just let me know so we don't over. But I usually put water in here every Wednesday, every Sunday. I'm just going to give my plant a little water. You're welcome. And I have left. I just poured there in there. Now I have a little water, just a couple drops. You know what these drops are to me? Nothing. God says the nations of the earth are like the is like one drop of water in here that I don't even care whether it feeds the plant or not. That's what he says. And then he says, the nations, not one nation, all the nations, he counts as the small dust of the balance. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you ever went on a diet? You say, I'm going to go on a diet. I know I have a scale. i got to get a new battery for the scale because, you know, the battery broke. So I'm going to get a new battery. Maybe you're going to go buy a scale, you know. And you're going to say, I'm going to lose weight. I want to lose three pounds every week, you know. So you're going to weigh yourself. Now, before you weigh yourself, ladies, I mean men, do you say, i got to make sure I'm going to dust the scale because I don't want the dust to throw off my weight. I don't want the dust to add extra pounds, you know. Do you ever think about that? Did you ever dust the scale? You just think of how much heavier you were. <laughs> See, I just gave you, I was like, wow, you could maybe. No, you didn't think about it. How come? Because it's nothing. It doesn't count. It doesn't weigh anything. God says the nations are like the dust. And then he says, and I count the islands. It's a very Now, some of you are from island nations. I did a little research about islands. He says the islands. He takes up the island. That's a little thing. They're not little to us. That's your home. That's your kingdom. That's your nation. Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia, 25,000 islands. God says, I take up the islands as nothing. The Philippines, how many islands? 7,640. Is that right? How many are inhabited? 2,000. God says those 706,040 islands, beautiful islands. El Nido, man. We've been to those, some of those islands where nobody lives. But we ate on them. You know, we swam in them, you know. God says, I take it up as a little thing. Do you know Greece? You know how many islands are in Greece? 6,000. Only 227 are inhabited. God says, I am so great. And, that, and Isaiah says, God is so great. The islands are just a little thing. We're just puny. God is mighty. So these praises of Nebuchadnezzar is amazing, emphasizing man's infinite pun or finite puniness, but God's infinite power. So look at the next passage in verse 35 of Daniel 4, where then Nebuchadnezzar says, He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? God is unstoppable and unquestionable. You can't stop God from fulfilling his purposes. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a fearless and famous military leader. Before he became the king of Babylon, 
he was serving in Babylon as the, the captain of the army. And was it wasn't after till his father died that he was crowned the king, but before that, he was the commander of an army. So he was a great military man and strategist. But he says that God has an army in heaven that is greater than his army on earth. Even though his army had defeated Assyria and Egypt and Israel and Tyre and Sidon, he says, your army in heaven is greater than our army on earth. He learned what Moses knew when Moses came through the Red Sea, that God is a man of war. And Moses looked at the buried Egyptian army in the sea. He knew what David knew when David stood before Goliath. And David said, I come to you, Goliath, in the name of the Lord of hosts. You remember that? The Lord of hosts. And the word is Sabaoth, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of all the armies of heaven. So David is saying, you're one dude, Goliath, but my God has a whole army to defeat you with. Nebuchadnezzar sees the armies of God. Like Moses, like David, he doeth his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He sees the Lord of Sabaoth. As the psalmist said in Psalm 24, Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Then notice what Nebuchadnezzar says. And he says in verse 35, he says, None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Like, what are you doing? You know who I think, you know what I think of here? I think of a parent and their, their child, their two year old is up in the high chair and they've eat, they've had their food and they've had enough. They're, they're done. You know, they don't want to be sitting in that high chair anymore. Now my kids never did this, but I know your kids probably do. But, uh, and they're, they're in their high chair and they're, they're tired of their hot dog or whatever. They didn't eat all of it, but you want them to eat more, but they're, they don't want to eat any more of it. So what do they start doing with their hot dog? You know, they start like throwing it all around, right? And so you, you have to take their hand and stop them. Like, no, don't throw your hot dog. Okay. You know, or whatever, right? Have you ever had to take your child's hand and hinder them? It's not hard to do. You're strong and they're so weak. That's the picture here. None can stay his hand. You can't stop God from working when he wants to work. But the word stay there, actually, it's kind of interesting because it, it has the idea not just of hindering from working, but striking it and to injure it to prevent it from working also. That could also mean be, be the idea. So, in other words, nobody can hurt God. I remember sometimes, like, when my kids were little and we were wrestling around the floor, I would just let them beat me up, you know. They could punch me with all their might. Are they going to hurt me? No, I said, just don't punch me in the face, you know. But you could punch me in my arms and my chest when I would put my chest out, you know. Say, like, punch here as hard as you want, you know, it's rock. <laughs> and they, they would punch me, you know, and they, they couldn't hurt me. They're too little. That's what he's saying about about us, we're so infant, we're so finite, and God's so powerful. Who can stay his hand? This reminds me of Isaiah in 45, verse 9. Can we read that verse together? It says, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker, 
Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou or thy work? He hath no hands. So again, that reminds me of Daniel chapter 4 when he says, What doest thou? In other words, don't strive. We, we as the earthen vessel cannot strive with the potter. And I looked at that verse for a while. I'm like, what does he mean here where it says, what the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth? Have you ever thought about that? What, what is he saying there? A potsherd is really just an earthen vessel. So he's saying here, look, you want to complain and fight with somebody? You want to go to war against Don't fight against God. <laughs> You're never going to beat God. And he says, let the potsherd fight, let the vessels of the earth, let one vessel fight with another vessel. You're better off fighting somebody else than fighting God. Now, I don't recommend fighting anyone, you know. But he's saying here, you think you're such a big pot? Fight with some little pot, but don't mess with God. Because you'll meet your match if you try to fight with God. See, Nebuchadnezzar had defeated all the nations of the world and won. But he tried to be in rebellion against God with his pride, but he met his match and he was brought down low. And he says, God, you win. <laughs> You've conquered this king. The third thing here is Nebuchadnezzar has to lean on God. Look up to God, learn of God, lean of God, lean on God. Now, when I say lean, I'm saying in the last verse of, th of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar literally shows forth he's a new creature. He's, he's living a new life. He is a new man. And I like the first word of verse thir 37. What's the first word of verse 37? Showing there's a new beginning for Nebuchadnezzar. The word is now. Now I. Not the old Nebuchadnezzar, but now. I, Nebuchadnezzar. And then he uses these words, praise, extol, and honor and there's that expression, the king of heaven. But what's interesting here, it's not a one-time phrase, but that the verbs of this verse express continuous praise. So that's why I say we need to lean on God with continuous praise to God. So I believe this is a new direction for, for Nebuchadnezzar. It's a new way of life to praise God. So Nebuchadnezzar is like singing a song of praise honoring the king of heaven and his expressions here are so incredible where he says the king of heaven whose works are truth you think nebuchadnezzar was always true to people around him always told the truth or deceitful and conniving and trick using trickery yeah he says god your your ways are always your works are always truth and your ways are always judgment and this reminds me of moses's song in deuteronomy 32 verse 4 where moses said in deuteronomy 32 4 he is the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are judgment a god of truth and without iniquity just and right is he do you see this similarity here he says his ways are judgment nebuchadnezzar says his ways are judgment. Nebuchadnezzar says his works are truth. Moses says a God of truth. Just and right. Now, I just have to kind of stop for a moment and tell you a little personal story about this verse. Because 
I get a flashback every time I read that verse. Every single time I read that verse. You know why? The first sermon I ever prepared was from that verse of scripture. And I prepared it to, for a preacher, for preacher boy contest. And I had not had a homiletics course. I, I didn't know what I was, I don't really, I still don't know what I'm doing, but I knew less then. But this is my first sermon that I've ever uh, prepared was from Deuteronomy 32.4. And I, I was in, they have a preacher boy contest. And, you know, it's really a good exercise for young preacher boys. And then there's professors, they watch you preach and they also grade you and they'll give you little tips or whatever. Or then they say, you lose, you're out of the contest, you know. But, uh but I would practice this sermon. I would go into like an empty classroom and I would just preach to chairs, you know, and, and preaching Deuteronomy 32.4. So I'm sorry. I just had to share that little flashback, a personal experience. It's a beautiful verse, though, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar learned about God. And the last thing here is Nebuchadnezzar became a man not only of continuous praise, but in his leaning on God. He became a man of continuous peace. Now, go back to the first three verses of this chapter. Because the first three verses are really an introduction. And everything has already happened in the first three verses. And really what comes across to me in these first three verses is this guy knows peace. Now, he had been a man of war. But he says in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied <coughs> unto you. What an amazing introduction. He, he reminds us of the New Testament apostles, starting an epistle. Peace be unto you. Be multiplied unto you. There he reminds us of Peter or Paul. But in the next verse, it's almost as if he reminds, he reminds me of Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Look at verse 2. He says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. Are you saved? If you're saved, God has wrought signs and wonders in you to bring you to salvation. Because that's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. God has done an incredible wonder of deliverance. What a sign. You know, some people, you know, they look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, well, he, you know, he just was down so low, you know, but I've never reached that, so I don't need God. Do you know, if God has brought you down that low to the point that that's what it took for you to look to God, thank him for it, you know? Not everybody has to become a beast in the field before they know they need Jesus, but all of us have our own experience God brings us through to show us our need. But he reminds me of Peter on Pentecost, Preaching Jesus Christ alive from the dead. And he says, Jesus is a man approved by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you. The life of Jesus Christ was a life of signs and wonders and mighty works that he has done for us. Thank God. Don't ever think God hasn't worked miracles in your life. That's really what I'm saying, too. If you have salvation... He's worked a miracle. And he worked a miracle to save you. And then, this also reminds me, finally, of John again, 
where he says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And I thought of Revelation 15, where the writer John writes about the song of Moses being sung in heaven. And they said, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou king, king of saints. Do you know what, beloved, as I close, I just want to say you're no match for the unstoppable king. Maybe you have depression today. Maybe you feel defeated today. Maybe you have financial troubles today. Maybe you feel lonely and isolated like Howard Hughes of old. Maybe you want to go into, you know, loneliness or something. Don't. Look up to the Lord. Learn of him. Lean on him with continuous praise. And continuous peace that he gives. You know, this past week, Vinny and Brother Teddy and I, we went out to eat at Forest Hills. We, we were in the bubble there. And we had a good fellowship, right, brother? And it just occurred to me as we were sitting there, and what a blessing it was to sit with these two men that I've known for 20 years. I've known each of them for 20 years. And believe me, we've gone through peaks and valleys, ups and downs. Teddy and Vinny, myself, ups and downs. At one point, Teddy even left the church out there, but God has miraculously delivered him and brought him back. Then even, for a brief moment, left Heritage. And even before that, before we were saved, I said, man, we were just a bunch of drug addicts, you know, and alcohol abusers. That's what we were before we were saved. I said, man, this is, we're just three drug, former drug addicts and alcohol abusers that have been rescued by the grace of God. And we have experienced his mighty wonders as Nebuchadnezzar of old. How mighty are his wonders. Thank God his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Will you be a part of that kingdom? Listen, don't stand against God. Look up to him. Learn from him. Lean on him. Don't run from him. Surrender to him. Let's love him with all our heart. Let's stand together as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful time. Thank you for your word and your faithful people to hear your word. Now bless us, O God, as we seek to serve you with our lives, knowing that you are our mighty king. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, just ponder for a moment, Jesus, the King of heaven, the King of all kings, how he humbled himself for you to take your sins in his body on that cross, to die, despising the shame of the cross, but now exalted at the Father's right hand. So look unto him, you're no match. You cannot stop his hand, but let his hand work and do wonders for you. Please work, O oh God, in our lives. Give us that peace like a river and to live a life of praise forever. In Jesus' name, amen.